should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull****. It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us here on this uh, Little Friday. It is Little Friday. I'm so excited. Uh, we have a really big, important show for you, so we're going to we're gonna get right into it. And I apologize for Comcast's yuckiness yesterday in which we couldn't upload our show. Uh, but we've got a great big show for you today. Today's program is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. So you uh, you probably have heard the the headlines, the trend um, in in terms of the last week uh, as far as news, and it hasn't been all great news as far as LGBTQI equality, uh, especially from the Mormon Church or the Latter Day Saint Church. Um, there's been some news as far as some changes that have been made to the handbook, in which now the church policy affects same sex couples and their children. Basically, my understanding of it is that the church will now deny baptism to children of same-sex couples, and uh, for the first time, list same-sex marriage under the definition of apostasy. Um, I couldn't think of anyone better than our fierce warrior, one of our incredible leaders, Kate Kendall, who's the executive uh, director of National Center for Lesbian Rights, to check in with these handbook changes. And not only that, but she's posted an op-ed to the Washington Post that she's also leaving the church. Let's welcome Kate Kendall to the program. Kate? Michelle, how you doing? It's good to talk to you. It's great to talk to you. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to talk to us about this shocking news and uh, and also just an incredible disappointment. Let's start with the handbook changes that I talked about. I mean, it, it, where is this coming from? Well, your guess is as good as mine. I mean, we um, I've talked to so many. Uh, I've talked to Mormons. I've talked to some active Mormons, including my own sister in Utah, and some other folks. No one saw this coming. No one understands it. No one can make sense of it. Um, it feels rushed. It feels undeliberative. It's, uh, it's, 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 there are two components to it. The first component is that if you enter into a same-sex marriage, you will be treated as an apostate. So what's so weird about that is that if a couple stays together, and doesn't marry as a same-sex couple, you're not in apostasy. You can still go to church. Um, you still are living in sin, of course, and this church does not in any way support um, uh, same-sex attraction or, quote, homosexuality. But you're not treated as an apostate, which is you know very much severed off from the church. It's if you get married, which, hello, is legal. Right. The second piece of it is even more offensive, and the second piece requires that if... Uh, you have a child as a same-sex couple. That child, if you were to wish this, 
and some couples do because they still love their church even if they want to live authentic lives. If you want your child to be baptized in the church, they cannot be baptized at age 8, as all kids in the Mormon church are. They have to wait until they're 18, and then only if they denounce your relationship as a same-sex couple. So it's not just hurting and enormously painful for a same-sex couple who is a faithful, who believe in the church but still try to reconcile these things with their life and who they are authentically. It, it also punishes their children in a way that just seems particularly draconian. I, it, it, draconian and also, you know, I feel like a deliberate attack on the LGBTQI community. I, you, I feel like this is in response to the progress that this country has made as far as equality. And um, and, and also blatant, you know, like we, we, we don't like we don't care. It just feels that way. And I'm, I'm sure for you it's it's very personal because, like I mentioned in the introduction, uh, you are leaving the church. Right. Let's talk about, you know, the decision to leave the church. I mean, was it uh, immediate uh, when you heard of these new policy changes? Well, the, the thing about the Mormon church is unlike most religions, if you are baptized in the church, as I was at eight years old in my hometown of Ogden, Utah, you're, you remain on their roles, the membership roles, as a faithful member, even if you're inactive, even if you don't go to church. Um, until you either have your name removed or are excommunicated by the church through a church court that they convene. So despite the fact that I really emotionally and spiritually left the church when I was 20, um, I've never gone through the process of having my name removed. And, and despite what I do for a living very publicly as a lesbian running the National Center for Lesbian Rights. There's never been any move to excommunicate me, so I remained on the rolls as a member. And I never felt strongly enough to ask that my name be removed. Even when the church was involved in Prop 8, I kind of toyed with the idea then, and then I thought, ah, you know, it just doesn't matter that much to me. I mean, I, I left the church long ago. I, I'm not particularly bitter about it. It just wasn't for me, and I think um, it's not for anybody who's LGBT, although there, I have many LGBT friends who who very much struggle with wanting to stay a part of the church. But when this came down, I really felt like there's no way to not be complicit in this terrorizing of LGBT couples and their children uh, if my name stays on the rolls. I, I've got to get I've got to I've got to get my name off, and even though that seems like a really small thing, and it wasn't painful to do it, I knew it was exactly the right thing to do. I'll tell you when I when I sent the message saying I I want my name removed and I explained why, um, it it was it caught it was it, it I mean it wasn't even really emotional, but what well, it wasn't nothing. It it definitely I wished I hadn't had to do it, and I guess it's because of my family and my mother who was a very devout Mormon was so supportive of me and she would have it would this would have been hard for her and you know she's no longer alive but I, I just knew in my heart of hearts that uh, that it would be a sad thing for her so I but I did I removed my name and then I wrote I wrote about that but I wrote about it in the context of what the church has done here which just seems so cruel and really evil in some ways um, yeah. and yeah it's 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 really 
and that, and that, you know, that was just one, that was just my thing that I did. Now there are thousands of, in fact, I've gotten many, many emails from people, um, including people who were raised Mormon who are going to do the same thing because, you know, there's just a moment when you have to say, I don't want to be a part of any organization that would do something like mm-hmm. this. There's two reasons why talking to you today is extremely important, whether you're Mormon or not. Um, and I think that comes from when religious leaders, uh, you know, basically it's like it's like a part of fear mongering. And it's it's also very harmful when religious leaders use their own uh, personal agenda or their, I'd say, hate um, you know, for institutions like the Mormon church. So, you know, some of the explanations for the policy changes have st- you know, stemmed from these religious leaders saying that, um, you know, it originates from a desire to protect children in their innocence and, and their minority years. And, you know, here on the Progressive Voices Network, we don't just have LGBTQI people listening. We have people from all walks of life. Explain to us, you know, when, when a religious leader uh, has a justification like that, why is it so harmful? Well, you know, the interesting thing about that justification is it makes no sense. It makes no sense because the Mormon church baptizes kids all the time when Mm -hmm. their parents are not active in the church. They baptize children um, uh, if one parent wants it and the other parent doesn't, which was kind of the case in my situation when I was baptized. they baptize kids where one is Mormon and the other is you know, an atheist or some other religion. So it, it, the facts of what they actually do in practice betray that justification. Uh, it is not about protecting minors from the sort of the conflict between believers and non-believers. They don't care about that at all. They, they want to baptize as many people as they can. That's why Mormon Church has missionaries all over the world. They mm-hmm. want to baptize as many people as they can because they believe that, that as the Church professes the gospel, that's the way to, the people will be saved, and they want to provide that opportunity to as many people as they possibly can. So... The explanation feels very slapdash, mm-hmm. and I think it, the real explanation is what you said earlier. I think they looked at what was happening in the country and our win on marriage in June, and this is a way of slapping us down and putting us in our place and making clear that they are in charge, and don't you be thinking that, uh, that you are going to in any way be supported, even just to be an LGBT person um, trying to reconcile your faith and, and who you are. Uh, it, it, feels, it, feels, um, it feels like an angry and shaming uh, mechanism. Mm-hmm. Michelle Miao, we're speaking with Kate Kendall, who's the executive director of the National Center for Lesbian Rights, and we're discussing the Mormon Church's new policies that are harmful to the LGBTQI community, but same-sex couples and their children. Um, And uh, Kate has decided to officially remove her name from the Mormon church roll call. Uh, Kate, have have they responded to your request? Have you heard from anybody? Um, No, I haven't heard from anyone officially, and I actually wouldn't expect to. I did ask for confirmation that my name had been removed. Um, I think I sent this just on maybe last Thursday or Friday. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to expect to hear, man, maybe I won't hear anything, especially if thousands of people are doing this, which mm-hmm. might be possible. Um, I did, I did get a call from a former, um, 
general authority in the church who uh, who I know well and who I'm actually friends with, and um, and and he no longer is a general authority in the church, but he, but he he expressed as much bewilderment as any of the rest of us about it, and um, and I haven't looked at you know the comments that people post because I just find that I think that's as much likely to be unhelpful as helpful. Right. Uh, but certainly, but certainly on, on my own social media, uh, the support has been overwhelming and it just, it just makes me love my community all the more. I mean, even people who aren't faithful people or who didn't grow up in a religion, they're just so kind, you know, they say, gosh, Kate, I'm sure this was painful or hard. And it wasn't really, but just the idea that people would feel that sort of empathy. Um, you know, we have a very loving, community that um that really wants people to be supported and and i feel um i'm definitely very much feeling that right now and i would much rather be in this community than in the mormon community that's for sure right i mean you know i i know that i'm um we're talking about it in a in a way where it is a huge disappointment because it is but there is the upside to it that we're seeing the uh, outpouring of support and and the outcry from not just the LGBTQI community but other Mormons as as you said and that leads me to my next question Kate I mean it's a conundrum to me because the state of Utah had uh, been praised earlier this year and I think we talked about it um, you know for for having a, a collaborative approach to uh, you know a religious freedom bill that was inclusive of LGBTQI, uh, uh, you know, protections, right? That was inclusive of sexual orientation and gender identity. Um, And this is now months down the road and we have these policy changes. I just kind of feel like, (laughs) how do you, you know, it it goes back to our fear that when we say religious organizations have the right to, to, to not perform services for the LGBTQI community, that it could get out of hand like this. And this is what we're seeing in Utah. Or maybe I'm being dramatic about it. Um, well, you know, look, I think, I think we're in a backlash. I think this is a backlash move. And I do think we will see... Um, I, I think we're going to be in a backlash for a while. I think what we see, we will see... People use religious refusal laws. I think we're going to see states pass some religious refusal laws. I mean, keep in mind, the day after uh, this news hit about the, the Mormon Church and, and, and the outcry and uh, just a huge, huge upswell, uh, we just heard, I just heard yesterday about this case of a couple in Utah where the judge wants to take their foster child away, who they've been fostering for a year, and who the birth mom wants them to be the adoptive parents, took the child away saying, children do better in heterosexual households, so I want the child to be removed from you. Uh, And first of all, that's a total lie. Children, there is no evidence and no study that says children do better in heterosexual households. The only studies there are say that children do better in two-parent households. Well, hello, like, and, and no knock against single parents, but that is a hard job, and it's, it's just much easier for there to be two of you that are supporting your children and supporting a household than one. And, and so the judge doesn't even have his facts right about the research, but it's this, what this kind of message sends, it's no surprise to me that the judge would rule this way um, after the church did what they did. Because the church is essentially sending a dog whistle to anybody who's anti-gay in the church to, like, do your worst. And this judge did. 
Kate, we're going to take a quick break. If you have a, a few more minutes to hang with us, um, I'd love to come back to you. Is that okay? Yeah, absolutely. You bet. All right. We'll, we'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll continue our discussion on the changes the Mormon Church has made to their handbook. Don't go away. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. Babe. I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us here on this little Friday or Thursday, I should say. I'm Michelle Meow, your host. Our guest today is on the phone. Kate Kendall is the executive director of the National Center for Lesbian Rights, a national legal legal organization committed to advancing the civil and human rights of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people and their families. Uh, Kate, you know, right before the break, we've been having this lengthy discussion about the Mormon Church or the Latter Latter Day Saints uh, Church and the changes that they have made to their policies that are extremely harmful to LGBTQI people or same sex couples and their children. Um, here's where I'm at with my mind. It's like every time I think that we make progress, I hear more and more stories of of uh you know, bad news or disappointing news such as, you know, HERO or the non-discrimination ordinance out of Houston, which we've talked about before, and now the church. And, and it's, it's, it's at this point where we say to ourselves, there is so much more work that we need to be doing. What is that work? Well, you know, this is the thing. I actually, I actually think this is a perfect illustration of that we're not done. And it. I think, look, the good news is everywhere I go when I talk about, you know, that we are not finished simply because we won marriage, which was very important. I mean, obviously, MCLR was one of the leading organizations that helped win marriage in this country. So I get that. It, it was definitely a big deal, and I don't want to diminish that in any way. But we're not finished. And, and the good news is I think most LGBT people, in fact, I've never talked to one LGBT person who thinks that we're done, or even people who support LGBTQI equality. Everyone recognizes this was an important high watermark. Let's 
grab the momentum and move forward, but they know we're not finished. And and I think that the Mormon Church has both put the pronouncement, the situation with this couple had them in their foster kid, uh, or attempt yet, it hasn't happened yet, that this judge wanting to jerk this foster kid out of the only parents that she has ever bonded to. Um, other cases that we're involved in, you know, we just had for the very first time anywhere in the country, the Alabama Supreme Court uh, upheld uh, invalidating a second parent adoption from another state. That has never happened. In the 22 years I've been doing this work, we have never seen an adoption invalidated by a state. And we've, we've challenged, these adoptions have been challenged in some very conservative states. Um, we had to sue Florida to get the names of two moms who were married on a birth certificate when they gave birth to their twins. Um, we, have, we are in a lawsuit in Louisiana on behalf of a transgender guy who was hired by a bank, uh, and as soon as they realized that his gender presentation did not match the gender marker on his driver's license, they fired him only because he was transgender. They hired him. They were super excited about him. He was very well qualified. They were really happy to have him. And then as soon as they realized that he was transgender, uh, they fired him. Uh, we are suing FedEx. In fact, this, we want to break this wide open. FedEx is denying a pension to a surviving partner of a 37-year employee because their marriage uh, happened a week uh, before the Windsor case that struck down DOMA. And so they are fighting us tooth and nail in court over a $200,000 pension, the single most important asset of the couple. But to FedEx, it's nothing. So you just look at our docket to say nothing of the work of so many other organizations, the Transgender Law Center, our legal colleagues at the ACLU and Lambda Legal, um, family organizations that help promote visibility and security for families. It, anybody can tell you who does work in the LGBTQI community, uh, we are so not done and there is so much left to be done and we have to make a commitment that we're not going to declare mission accomplished until we truly are finished. Right. Right. Which is, you know, thank you so much for the illustration from a legal standpoint. What are your thoughts as far as like a social you know, standpoint? It seems people seem to think that you know, the media is doing a, a great job being inclusive of our lives and, and covering, you know, the issues that impact us. But how do you feel from, you know, from kind of where you're, you stand? You know, I actually do think that um, that the visibility and coverage, both popular culture, media, um, I think generally it's been it's been really good. It's and it really just presents us as authentic people just living our lives and you know with the same struggles that you know anybody else has uh, around you know whether it's making ends meet or you know finding the time to juggle job and family. Um, it, it's the common humanity that is presented by the media just telling our stories or letting us tell our stories, just uh, acknowledging excuse me, acknowledging that we exist and, um, and that we're very diverse, too, is, is just really important. I mean, we are, in lit- we are literally in every single demographic. And mm-hmm. so we're in every single community, every single neighborhood. And just that fact being out there for public consumption helps people understand who we are and, and helps them know us. And that's, as a large measure, that's in large measure how we came so far so fast. 
Kate, as we're winding down and wrapping up our discussion here um, regarding the very disappointing news of the Mormon church changing their policies that will hurt same-sex couples and their children, I mean, denying children baptism, that's so horrible just because they have gay parents. You know, I I think that the, that you're right. There's going to be a new, you know, type of progressive of, of Mormons who are inclusive of LGBTQI people. How will these changes, this policy, how do you think that it will harm the church in a, in a massive way? Oh, I think it already has. Mm-hmm. I think, I think the fallout from this is unlike anything I've ever seen. It's similar to the fallout after the church's massive involvement in prop eight. Um, and it took the church, you know, I don't know if the church ever really recovered from it, but, but it was very, very troubling for the church to be painted as being so virulently anti-gay and opposing civil marriage. No unwilling church is going to have to ever marry a same-sex couple. Absolutely never. The Mormon, no Mormon temple is ever going to be forced to perform a same-sex union. That's never going to happen. We're talking about civil rights. We're talking about the civil law protecting us in the same way that it does anyone else. And I just feel like, you know, when you ask the question, what would Jesus do? Uh, it's a pretty clear answer that Jesus would say, hey, everybody should be treated equally under right. the law. Yeah. And so I feel like we're back to that moment after Prop 8. In fact, in some ways, worse because it's such a personal attack. You know, Prop 8, you could argue, was sort of a policy difference. But here, you're actually singling out same-sex couples who legally marry and their children for really toxic treatment that shames them and creates huge stigma. There is just no way to justify it. And I think, you know, I, I, look, I don't wish any ill on, on the Mormon hierarchy, but, you know, you, it's, as they well know, you reap what you sow. And uh, with that being said, I, you know, on that note, um, what what are some words of encouragement? I mean, uh, your leadership in, in, in kind of what you've written in your op-ed is great, uh, but for those out there who are uh, deeply disappointed, not sure what to do as gay Mormons, what words do you have for gay Mormons today? Well, I mean, the first thing I would say is how I'm so sorry, uh, because this is this is unspeakably cruel, and um, and no one deserves to be treated like this by a faith that they love. Um, but what I would also say is, you know, you're at the vanguard. You're in the middle of the fight. And, you know, you look to every other civil rights struggle, whether it's suffrage, the right to vote, whether it's um, uh, uh, Native American rights, whether it's African American civil rights movements, whether it's immigration the people who are, you know, the first in line to really push social change and a greater acceptance and understanding are always the most harmed. They are always the ones who are in the line of fire. And, and so, in a way, you're heroes. Uh, and future generations will have it better because you've made this sacrifice. And, you know, I would also say the church doesn't deserve you. So find a welcoming uh, church community, religious community, and there are many of them, that embrace uh, same-sex couples and households and be in a place where you can feel affirmed for all of who you are. Uh, it's the Mormon Church's loss if you do not any longer participate. Kate, thank you so much for your time. I know that, uh, again, you're busy out there being superwoman and fighting for us. Uh, and thank you so much for all that you do. 
It's my pleasure, Michelle. Greetings from the Big Apple. Uh, it's always great to talk to you. Please support the work that NCLR does. As you can tell, it is extremely important, but also it's vital in, in terms of our movement. So visit nclrights.org. Don't go away. When we come back, we'll continue the program. And we also have another great big interview for you as uh, we start to wrap up Little Friday here. So don't go away. I'm Heclina. I've been doing drag here in San Francisco for almost 20 years, and uh, over the past couple of months, I just opened up my club, Oasis. It's been going really well. People really seem to appreciate the space. It's something people say San Francisco really needs right now because the city has been changing a lot. I always had this attitude of, of opening a space that was kind of like for everybody, and that's just kind of the attitude and the, the uh, the ethics of Oasis is it's kind of a space for everybody. How does it feel to be a business owner? I don't know, you know, it's funny because I still need to, I still have to kind of pinch myself to believe it's actually true, you know what I mean? Like I walk in there and, and I go up to the bar and I go, oh, could I please have a glass of water? You know, it's kind of like, I forget that it's my place. Running gay clubs, it's changed a lot. Um, I think that gay people now, they're everywhere. They don't feel like they have to maybe be in a gay bar all the time, so you have to be much more creative about how you are enticing people to come out to your club. I, I guess I'm successful because I'll just say it, I work really hard at what I do. I also like to provide a really quality experience for people. So yes, you know, people will pay to see my shows and pay to come to my club, but I always like, like to give them something that's worth it. The experience that they'll, they'll leave my shows going, okay, that was worth it, you know what I mean? This has always been my attitude. Um, just to entertain people, and so it seems like that works, you know. I would say to young kids, you know, just kind of form your own identity. And, uh, and you know, don't let others dictate how you should behave or think. Uh, you can always go to uh, sfoasis.com to find out about all the entertainment and nightlife that we have going on at Oasis. If you want to see drag, we've got that for you. If you want to see some queer hip-hop parties or queer dance parties, we have that for Spotlight you. Spotlight on success and achievement. Brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Michelle Meow, your host, and it is Little Friday today. It is Thursday, November 12th. Our next guest is a black queer artist, activist, and policy analyst at the Center for the Study of Social Policy, who is passionate about addressing disproportionality and disparities that affect LGBTQ and gender nonconforming youth. This is a topic that I am so, so, so passionate about and so happy that our producer, Fong, has been able to um, to get our guest on. So let's welcome Jonathan Likas to the program. Jonathan, welcome. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be on the program with you. Um, I want to bring up an article that was posted uh, at the Huffington Post or HuffingtonPost.com in which um, the article that you wrote pretty much discuss a, a, a statistic that I don't think that we talk enough about, which 
um, for the most part, you know, 40% of girls in juvenile detention are uh, LGBTQI or identify as such. Is that correct? Yeah, that's that's absolutely correct. And, and you know, what I really think that statistic represents is uh, the importance for us to continually be intentionally intersectional. Um, we don't think about intersectionality enough when we think about uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, when we think about young girls of color that are impacted by systemic oppression. Um, so, so I not only think that that statistic is true, but I think it needs to um, really um, strike us to take action um, and make sure that we're including the stories of young women and young girls um, of color into our analysis when we're thinking about undoing systemic and institutionalized racism in our society. I bring up, you know, a, a lot of the uh, the oppression. This is coming fresh from me standing up to, uh, you know, a, a CEO, the CEO of Walmart, in trying to mm-hmm. bring up, you know, low-income families and the exploitation of uh, low-income uh, families and you know LGBTQI people, immigrants, so on. I'm sure you have a lot to say about Absolutely. something like that when we're talking about intersectionality. But when we when we have these big discussions about um, trying to undo you know systemic oppression, it's so huge that it almost is un. Uh, I can't even imagine what that even looks like. Can you give us some examples and how that applies to, or how that could actually, uh, if we're not talking about it in the right way, how it could negatively impact people who are the most marginalized? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think you know it, it's it's a um, a fine line to walk for us. Definitely us doing movement work and us at the Center for the Study of Social Policy, which is trying to create an analysis to support that movement work happening on the ground. I'll say this. Um, an example of, of the importance of intersectionality that we often fall into is when we continue to only highlight stories, uh, or when we're talking about criminalization issues, we might highlight and center the stories of black cis men impacted by police violence. Now, of course, um, when, we, when we're uplifting the names of Trayvon Martin, uh, Mike Brown, Eric Gardner, those are crucial stories that we need to highlight and lift up. But at the same time, we have to make sure we're not forgetting the stories of those black trans women um, that are often impacted by police violence or, or black cis women, uh, young black girls growing up in schools that are impacted by these same issues. So I think in taking an intersectional approach um, or in another way we, we call it in the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, in Black Youth Project 100, we say doing work through a black queer feminist lens. Um, and that really allows us to see and understand that our identities uh, often make us vulnerable to multiple types of oppression. So trying to center those who are most marginalized um, to make sure uh, if we're making um, freedom more accessible for black men, making sure that that freedom is also accessible to immigrants and black trans women and cis women, et cetera, et cetera. So well said. Um, and, and then you're kind of applying this back to your to your article. Of the uh, the 40% that are considered LGBTQI, you know, uh, women in juvenile detention, I shouldn't say women because they're all youths. I mean, it, it's... it's yeah. It's crazy to me to think about this, right, that that the dialogue that we're having on a bigger platform in terms of LGBT equality and progress has been so focused on marriage that I feel like, you know, we're really not 
hitting the mark here in yeah. providing voices for the people who need us most. How is it possible that in a time in which there, you know, is a higher percentage or the polls show that the, you know, the United States, right, has more support for uh, LGBTQI people, um, that we have this disparity, this horrible figure of of most of our vulnerable being either locked up or on the streets. Because if you look yeah. at it from the homeless perspective, 40% of, of youths who are homeless also identify as LGBTQI. Tell me something. Am, am I missing something or are we not doing anything? Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree with you, uh, Michelle. One, I think we have to really highlight the importance of um, visibilizing the stories of these young people. They have been deemed invisible. Um, I can't tell you how much money has been spent on the marriage movement over the last 10 years. And I think, you know, we're all very happy that that uh, has been passed by the Supreme Court and that we can now move on. But for a very long time, young LGBTQ youth of color have not been worried about marriage. We've been worried about the police violence that we experience on the street. We've been worried about um, homelessness and family rejection. So oftentimes it's these systems uh, working together to further marginalize these young people, um, and then we haven't necessarily gotten the support we need from the LGBTQ uh, movement work. But we also have to understand that it's not just about being LGBTQ. Um, of that statistic of the 40%, 85% of, of those young people are girls of color in these systems. So it, it has to be not only a focus um, on sexual orientation and gender identity, but also a focus on race and class. Mm -hmm simultaneously. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You said something that, uh, you know, was very poignant earlier in talking about Black Lives Matter. The Black Lives Matter movement has been successful in um, at least, you know, on a, on a bigger platform, having a discussion about police brutality and how it impacts uh, the lives of black men or black cis men. Um, and, 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 you know, w lots of people now better understand the systemic oppression that basically puts a, a black man's life in the hands of police, even for the smallest crime. I don't think that we are able to do the same when we talk about uh, LGBTQI people of color and when they're incarcerated, if we were to look at the number of youths who are incarcerated, I mean, what what is the percentage of small crimes and or the reasons why they're incarcerated to begin with? I mean, juvenile detention, um, the, we're not necessarily talking about, you know, women's penitentiary. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think... We really have to uplift uh, the narrative of school-to-prison pipeline and how a lot of the crimes that people are being locked up for are really um, ridiculous, nonviolent um, crimes that really it's just young people being young people. Mm -hmm. um, there's a movement happening around the country uh, within Black Lives Matter um, to decriminalize blackness in a lot of ways or brownness in a lot of ways. Um, and that's just this idea that young people growing up in schools are often criminalized because of their racial identities and how that intersects with their uh, sexual identities. I'll also say with, with young LGBTQ people, um, I think that there's research from Caitlin Ryan and the Family Acceptance Project work that says um, families that reject young people puts them at higher risk for suicidality, for depression, for drug use, for higher sexual uh, risky behaviors. Um, so we have to understand that 
um, oftentimes because of sexual identity also, and that rejection puts young people at risk for entering into these systems. And that's both runaway homeless systems, child welfare systems, and juvenile justice systems. Michelle Miao, our guest on the phone with us is Jonathan Likas, who is a black queer artist, activist, and policy analyst at the Center for the Study of Social Policy. We're having a broad discussion about, you know, the disparities that affect LGBTQ and gender nonconforming youth. There is an article that's posted up at HuffingtonPost.com that states that a staggering 40 percent of girls in juvenile detention identify as LGBTQI. Um, Jonathan, before we go on break, uh, you know, I wanted to, to to ask this, you know, there's this huge stigma uh, already uh, against, you know, people who are poor or people who are, you know, come from low income communities um, or, you know, neighborhoods that might not be white, for example. Um, You know, if you could just kind of discuss for listeners out there the importance of how take all of that stigma and then add LGBTQI in the mix that that really, it doesn't give our youths uh, a lot of opportunities to to feel good about themselves, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think we have to talk about uh, the multiple form of, forms of marginalization that are impacting uh, young LGBTQ youth of color. Um, I think Kathy Cohen, uh, professor at University of Chicago, has a lot of great research coming out about um, the intersecting identities of, of young people of color experiencing systemic oppression from all of these systems. So what does it mean for a young person not only have to worry about their racial identity being a risk factor for being profiled, um, for being um, uh, pushed into the school-to-prison pipeline in school, but then you're dealing with homophobia. Um, and then on top of that, we really need to talk about gender in this country and how narrow and violent views of gender are impacting young trans and gender nonconforming populations. Um, so, so these multiple identities uh, really are important to highlight and to visibilize as we're lifting up the stories of these young people that need our support. Jonathan, I'm, I'm going to take a quick break, but when we come back, I'd love to finish off our discussion with words of empowerment because, uh, you know, I think between you and I, uh, we've got to get there where we can empower our youths to, to, to break out of the system. So stay with us. Absolutely. The Michelle Miao Show continues right after this. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on on Facebook. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. On the Progressive Voices Facebook page, we update the stories that our hosts like Tom Hartman, Stephanie Miller, Bill Press, and Leslie Marshall will be talking about during their shows. And we share great news, commentaries, opinion pieces, and videos from all over the progressive world. Always progressive, always on. Be part of the progressive conversation. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boyes came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence 
discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year, with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face -face with today's thought leaders. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. Our guest on the phone is Jonathan Likas, a black queer artist, activist, and policy analyst at the Center for the Study of Social Policy. So, Jonathan, right before the break, I, I mentioned, you know, empowerment. Um, and I, I'm, you know, I had this discussion with, with a lot of Walmart employees in which it's like, you know, the solution is to not continue to oppress us. Uh, yeah. You know, to continue, you know, giving us these uh, low wage jobs and work us to the bone to where we can't even afford health care or basic, you know, things like uh, a home. And I, and I talked about, you know, how we need we want to empower our communities to rise up from that and move out of it. But we obviously need tools to, to do that. What are your thoughts? Yeah, no, absolutely. So uh, at the Center for the Study of Social Policy, um, there's a new initiative called the Get Real Initiative. Uh, and real stands for recognize, engage, affirm, and love. And that's really what we're trying to push in our practice work and our policy work with young people. But we also understand the importance that we need to engage these young people directly um, and lift up the interventions that they've created for their own lives. I think one thing that gives all of us hope is that the extreme resiliency of young LGBTQ youth and youth of color all across this country. Um, so while in Get Real, we're working to train social workers and staff um, to, to understand the experiences of these young people so when they enter into these systems, they can have better outcomes, not worse outcomes. Um, but it's also about directly engaging these young people in supporting the interventions that they've created for their own lives. I also wanted to you know, get your thoughts in today's, um, I guess, figures or, or leaders of our time when we talk about LGBTQ people who are in the news. You know, at the end of the year, you you have the big uh, media companies who do those list of influential people or the, you know, like out.com has their 100, you know, top LGBTQI people. While I do see, you know, the, the, the point of it, sometimes I get um, somewhat angry because I don't feel that it is 100% representational of our community, but also because we don't have the voices that we really need to speak for the most marginalized. Um, what are your thoughts? And also a secondary question to that or a follow-up, you know, who would be the empowering figures or LGBTQI leaders for our youths who are incarcerated or homeless uh, and, and so so forth and so on? Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I do think um, 
you know, the leaders are out there. We're everywhere. We're on the ground. We're doing the work. We might not be in the newspapers or we not, might not be on CNN all the time, but there's absolutely a, a new generation of resilient, young LGBTQ youth leaders. I mean, one example is that so many of uh, organizations that are doing Movement for Black Lives works uh, work are queer leaders. So when you think of uh, organizations like Black Youth Project 100, it's led by Charlene Carruthers. When you think of the Black Lives Matter movement in itself, um, Elle Hearns, uh, a black trans woman, is, is leading a lot of that work. So we have to be able to, to lift up other names within the trans liberation movement like Biko Cherno, Angelica Ross, or Janet Mock. These are really um, inspiring people who um, you, you might not hear their names in, in mainstream public but they are absolutely doing the work on the ground and doing inspiring work to, to lead this next generation of activists, artists, and academics uh, to shift the systems that are oppressing our lives so that 50 years from now we won't be talking about the same issues that we're talking about today. Do you have hope for the future? I have a lot of hope um, in the get real work that we're doing. It's really exciting to be able to go into systems and literally say, what do we need to redesign these systems to better meet the needs of young people? Um, so that's the work that, that really excites me and, and gives me hope and, and hearing about the practice changes that, that happen. You know, those changes will only happen uh, if we give the people the skills to understand um, the experiences of these young people. And, and that's what we're trying to do in the get real work. Last question for you, and it's kind of a big, heavy one. Um, do you think that the uh, big national organizations that do work within the LGBTQI community will will start to, uh, you know, discuss intersectionality and and also address intersectionality in their work and providing resources for our youths and the most marginalized? Yeah, you know, I hope so. Uh, is is the question? Is the answer? I, I really. Um, think we're at a moment in time where young people are really um, not going to wait for any type of um, institutions to to uh, reach the freedom and liberation that we need. I think young people, young LGBTQ youth of color all around the country and really all around the world uh, are going to organize uh, our own movement to fight for our own liberation. Um, and we are absolutely willing to, to build coalitions with some of these more traditional uh, LGBTQ rights organizations, but I don't think young people will wait for them to come along. Um, young people are dying, you know, um, and, and the, what we're facing out here on these streets um, is, is crucial and, and it needs our attention, not tomorrow, not next week, not after another large policy gets passed by the Supreme Court, but um, we need it addressed now. And, and young people are, are kind of leading that charge within the Black Lives Matter movement, but also in all of these other movements happening around the country. Um, so that's the trans liberation movement, that's the immigration movement. And there uh, is coalition being built between these young movements, between people on the ground. So I think that, um, you know, we'll see what happens with, with some of the larger organizations, but young people are going to do the work regardless, as we always have. Oh, you're just such a refreshing voice and just someone that totally gets it. And, you know, that's just been the discussion that we've been having uh, for, for many, many years now. Jonathan, yeah. thank you so much for your time and the work that you do. Well, thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate that. To follow Jonathan's work or to support the organization uh, that he works for, you can visit CSSP.org. Well, Fong? 
you know, as our, our young producer um, and, and listening to today's program, how does that make you feel? Um, empowered. It does make you empowered. Yeah, because, you know, as you were saying, like, we need more voice, voices like um, Kate Kendall and um, Jonathan's because most of the time we don't really get a lot of those really inspiring and motivating type of advice, um, you know, due to the fact that it's hard to find some very powerful um, leading, um, you know, activists out there. And sometimes when you do find them, in, there are other folks who need them more. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Do you ever get afraid, like, you know, with the announcement of the Mormon church blatantly <laughs> changing their policies that, I mean, they're not even trying to hide their hate. They're just, you know, no, you can't baptize. I mean, I, you're probably not Mormon, but I'm just saying <laughs> that if a religious institution, you know, who's supposed to represent a ton of people, like we're talking, you know, over a million people right here in this country, if they could do something like that and be an, uh, successful or in, influential, does that scare you as an LGBTQI person? On the, yeah, they do scare me when they are able to, you know, have such power and somehow just do whatever they want um, overtly about, you know, um, and just make changes. Because most of the time, a lot of activists or like grassroots um, folks who work so hard to advocate for, you know, some um, policies and changes, it takes forever and it takes a lot of people, a lot of time and effort. So then when I can, you know, hear about, you know, what Kate said and how they just change it without, you know, really having to go through a lot of different process or a lot of support in any ways, it's, it's just mind boggling to know that they have such power. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, I actually feel sad for yeah. people who have that much um, hate and who spend time thinking mm-hmm. about other people's lives. Mm-hmm. Cause I actually think that that is um, it's like wasted energy, right? Like if I <laughs> were to care so much about what you do in your own personal life and I'm not focused on myself, mm-hmm. I'm wasting that energy that mm-hmm. I could have been, you know, focusing on my family or my, my or empowering and uplifting myself as Jonathan's talking about. So I think at the end, when people are supportive of, of, you know, these types of policy changes or these harmful policies that impact a, another community, mm-hmm. um, it makes me, it makes me sad. It doesn't anger me, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in a, in a way where I want revenge or something <laughs> like that. It makes me so sad because you see just the ugliness of like mankind, mm-hmm. uh, which then, at the same time, as you had said, it's so interesting because we're talking about two really, 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 um, you know, not disappointing, but like two two situations that clearly outline the issues that the LGBTQI community still is experiencing. Mm-hmm. Although it disappoints you, it equally empowers you mm-hmm. that that you know that's why we have to keep the lights on here in this studio and continue giving voices to the people who need it most mm-hmm. um, and we also need to put ourselves out there as uncomfortable as it may be from San Francisco to Fresno to Benville to wherever oh yeah we're gonna do that we're definitely doing that right now 
So a couple things I wanted to check in with you. I mean, it's Little Friday. Usually Little Friday makes me feel like the weekend's already here. I might be the only person here in this country who celebrates Little Friday. Um, but I don't think so because I, I see all the bars fat and full at uh, 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock. Uh, you know, so on Thursdays? I, yeah. Thursday is like the new Friday. Oh, okay. You know, people like stroll into the office late on Friday or, you know, they stroll in their casual clothes. But um I, I wanted to bring up the Southeast Asian Film Festival, right. which we'll be covering here on the program, not just, you know, radio, but also television. Um, I'm so excited about it. I'm so excited that the Southeast Asian Film Festival is inclusive of queer stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't know if you were able to check out a couple of them, but that, are, you know, some of them are Vietnamese or from Vietnam. Yeah. Some are from Cambodia. Some are from Laos. Laos. Yeah. It's going to be hard, you know, reaching out to them, but... It's amazing to know that there are films being made at different places about LGBTQ lives because most of the time it's not like people have such platform or we know where to reach them or, you know, think just thinking, the thought of thinking about going to those countries and making these amazing films. Yeah, I'm, I'm so interested and curious to know about the films out of Laos. I mean, you know, it's just so in- I, I saw a YouTube video of a gentleman from Laos who had confronted Hillary Clinton on, you know, um, on the landmines that, you know, are still are still there in, in, in a country like Laos mm-hmm. and in the whole uh, relationship with, the you know, the Communist Party and the landmines and, 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 and war and, and all of that. Um you don't even think about like LGBTQI lives and what it is like in a country like Laos. So you'll find out next week if you tune in. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Sorry about the Comcast hiccup there. They decided to have an outage as we were trying to record the show. But hopefully that won't happen anymore. For everything else, you can head to MichelleMeow.com. Otherwise, uh, tune in tomorrow at 4 o'clock for John Zipper of the Commonwealth Club. 